You are listening to Power Marketing with Kevin Lee. Kevin and his agency Did It have helped thousands of businesses win through superior marketing, as have his books, articles, speaking engagements, and the eMarketing Association Power Marketing Podcasts. Here's Kevin. I'm super excited to be chatting with Jeanette Braun, who runs a, a law firm specifically focused on, well, focused on a lot of things, but um, intellectual property and, of course, uh, privacy and, and all things digital, which overlaps a lot into AI these days. So we'll start with sort of the big topic, which is the intersection of, of AI into IP and sort of where's that shifting landscape going and and what are your thoughts on on where that'll end up or how people should sort of try to protect themselves when it comes to co-inventing things with AI this is thank you so much Kevin this this is really a, a fascinating time to be in law because the law has not caught up right so we have innovation is moving at the speed of light and justice moves swift like a snail. So uh, so we have this big open space. We have an area actually to innovate in law while the innovations are taking place outside of law. So what do you do if you use an AI tool to come up with a new technology, something that'll disrupt how we are working today uh, and it's going to completely change how business runs? How do you protect this? Well, there are four intellectual property rights. So we have patents, we have trade secrets, all patents start out as a trade secret. We have copyrights and we have trademarks. We also have a trade dress, which is a subcategory of trademarks. Some people will say there's five categories, but we're gonna focus on four. And let's just start with patenting it. With patents, you have to be the original author of the invention of the idea. And this is also the same for copyrights. You have to be the original author of the artwork. If let's say that new disruptive thing that's coming out of AI is an artwork of some sort, including computer code, because computer code is also protectable by copyrights. So how, how, how do you check that box on the declaration when you submit your patent application or your copyright application uh, for registration? And the answer is right now, it depends. Um, the law hasn't caught up. We ha do have the monkey selfie case, um, which blew up all over the internet a few years ago. This is where a monkey took a picture of himself and the monkey actually clicked the camera. Uh, to take the picture of himself smiling. And there was a big uh, lawsuit over that, trying to determine who owned the copyright to that picture because the monkey took it. And the courts determined that no one owns the copyright to the picture because only humans can own copyrights. And that's the same with patents. So it's going to be, I think right now, it's a sliding scale. It's going to depend on how much the human inputted into the system as to whether they can actually check that box and say, yes, I authored that work. I created that, that idea in order to register it. That, that's a, a fascinating area. And of course, <clears throat> only the inventor knows for sure what percentage of their person was involved in, in the, the creative process. You know, I, I sort of liken it a little bit, and to some extent, I'm, I'm inspired by a question Shelley Palmer asked, which is sort of when you're a music composer or when you're an artist, right? Often, and and you're doing full for hire work, right? 
you will you will hear from a client, oh, I'd like it to be inspired by Monet or Picasso or Elton John or whatever it is, right? And and it provides you some thematic guidance, right? And so whether now you're using Midjourney to do an image or you're using ChatGPT or one of its brethren to do content or coding or whatever, the prompt is still somewhat of an instruction to, you know, use be inspired by prior prior art but that but yet in in human world that would still be unique whatever you created as long as it didn't cross that you know that boundary right where it was a a copy and so now yes. you know this sort of similar construct could apply to ai um and and clearly if i write something in grammarly fixes my grammar right it's mostly mine right that's correct grammarly helped me right so that that's de minimis but then if if I asked uh, a large language model to give me some inspiration on what to write about. And then I did, you know, did a fair amount of manipulation after the fact. Where's that? Where's the line? Is it 51% of human uh, tweaking? Or or what would you recommend to people if they're trying to be honest? So there it's impossible to set up a bright line rule now. It's going to be all shades of gray. In, in going forward until um, Congress comes down with a new law or the Supreme Court of the United States interprets some law that we have to mean something in this space. But I, I do see, think it's going to be a sliding scale. And so if let's say you're composing music, let's use your music composition, and you say, write me, um, you tell the I, I, AI to write me a, a song inspired by uh, Mozart combined with Journey, right? And it spits out a song. Um, that the AI is now expressing the idea behind that concept. So if you're feeding it a concept, the idea that comes out of that, I would think that that one didn't have much input. It was it was an you gave it an idea and it came back with the expression which is what copyrights cover. Copyrights protect the expression of an idea, not an idea itself. Patents do protect ideas, but it has to um, actually be innovative. And, you know, combining Journey and Mozart music is not, most likely not patentable. <laughs> but if we're looking at the copyrights, right? So now if I go back to that AI and I say, write me music that combines Mozart and Journey in the key of A flat and make sure that it never uses the key, uh, the, the note G, right? Like, okay, now we're, we're having more um, instruction by the human and maybe then that output is getting closer to something that the human would own and it wasn't actually AI generated. If you give, the more instruction you give the AI, the more likely of a chance you have to own the intellectual property coming out of that, whatever it is that you're asking it to do. So the more instruction you can give it, the better. Now, if you give an instruction and it comes out with something and then you have to give it more instruction to kind of get it to match what's in your head, that also helps. And that helps move it closer towards your owning it. And it's not just AI generated content, which has no protectable rights behind it. Well, I guess there'll be a lot of folks um, when they're filling out IP related paperwork, <clears throat> 
who are going to sort of perhaps fudge it a little bit uh, into the, yes. yeah, the, I, I was very instrumental in the creation of this. And, uh, it, it, you know, plausible deniability at that point, I think becomes part of the challenge and people's willingness to, uh, you know, should it make its way into court to uh, under oath, you know, indicate exactly how, how much uh, influence they had. And it's not clear for some of these platforms what level of digital footprint you leave behind should should somebody willing you know be willing to do the forensic analysis to try to figure out you know well where exactly <laughs> did the AI leave you off uh, with this piece of creative so that'll be it'll be really fascinating to watch. I'd love to I pivot, agree. <laughs> I'd love to pivot to a, a related issue, which is is the fact that um, the the LLMs have, have essentially looked at the corpus of information that's available to them to train themselves. And then, of course, they refine themselves based on feedback from users. And uh, a great deal of that information is also uh, intellectually protected, either as, as copyrighted information or otherwise. And, um, you know, fair use in music and fair use in use of news and images and everything, there's sort of a, a framework there. But, you know, when when this AI is is using former content as an inspiration, will do you see that there being some sort of like an ASCAP related model to sort of try to micropayment out the you know the fact that it used that journey <laughs> uh, that journey music to create something inspired by journey, or do you think that that there's sort of no compensation due to the original IP owner when it was you know only a very small slice of what what they had created that was used to create uh, new non non copyrightable art. <laughs> so we we have solid rules in that space already. So if we know that something has a copyright to it and someone owns it, right? All journey music, someone owns it. Um, and so in that side of that copyright, the owner also owns derivative works. Now, again, there's no bright line rule as to say how much of a work needs to be copied or similar for it to be considered a derivative work. Um, it's a gray area again, and it's up to the judge, or up to the judge to decide is this an similar enough or not. You have to be able to identify the, the original work inside of the new work for a derivative work to apply. So depending on how much is similar will depend on whether or not Journey could come, come to court and say, this machine generated um, music that's out there that's blowing up and making other people money, this is infringing on my copyright because this is a derivative of mine. Here, you can hear these, this phrase or a musical phrase, right? Like you can hear this musical phrase and it definitely picked it up from from our music. So they they might be able to enforce the copyrights that they already have. Mm -hmm. Now, looking at the flip side of that, so let's say maybe it's not enough of a derivative work. You can hear four or five notes strung together and maybe it's reminiscent of a, a journey sound, but it's not close enough. Well, I, I would say ASCAP will probably set up their own model for running AI generated music that would not give money back to Journey because there's no reason to, right? So why would they be cut into the deal if there's no no right there to compensate them for? That's just 
opinion off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, I was more thinking about like the ASCAP model more broadly, right? For for potentially written content <laughs> as well and all forms of artistic content, you know, because um, you think about individual site owners um, who may not even have the copyright to the stuff on their site, but yet it, that's where it lives, right? So you think about Reddit or Quora or LinkedIn, where uh, a lot of information lives and essentially the terms of service often on those sites has granted those sites the ability to use that information as we as humans add it to the site, right? Yes. And and they're yes. profiting from that, that um, the use of that content in their context and within their walled garden. But sometimes the AI may have visited and gotten that information, right? And then use that information to make itself stronger. Do you feel like there's a, some impetus or legal rationale for a a Reddit or, um, or 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 a LinkedIn or someone else who you know who has this content that may have been used to make the AI stronger and and some small two percent slice of their content was used to articulate a, a result that was paid for by somebody. Does do you see a, an ASCAP type model potentially solving that problem in that it rewards the original content owner? I guess. When a small, you know, because they're not getting a citation, right? It used to be there was yeah. this quid pro quo, like Google would come and call your stuff and use abstracts, but the quid pro quo was, yeah, but they'll link to it and cite it so that you'll get the traffic and the traffic will be worthwhile to you. And so everybody's happy, right? The lang the, the uh, large language model just skips that whole step and gives you the answer to the question, right? It may have used 275 places to create that answer of what's the best whiskey over 20 years old, right? But those places that the information came from, they don't even know that the AI used the information. So is there a way that you could see down the road that either they would deserve that compensation for the three cents that the, that the you know, the pro rata three cents that that question <laughs> that I asked from the AI was valued, you know, by me or that I paid for? Personally, I think, yes, they should, because I am pro-rights. However, I really do think, uh, uh, just based on opinion, I think it's not going to happen because there's mm. no reason to pay. Two or 3% could be considered a de minimis use, and it's not actually a derivative work. So the whole reason why we have ASCAP and BMI and um, I think Henry Fox is the other agency is because we have copyright rights. And we have copyright rights owned by humans. And we are now moving into an age where we're going to have these artistic works that are not owned by anybody. There is no copyright right, right. to it at all. So we're going to have all of this um, authorship all over the place and all kinds of everything that nobody owns because it's generated by a computer and even the owner of the computer cannot claim copyright to it. We, the monkey selfie case is a good example of that. The owner of the camera could not say that that was my copyright because the monkey used my camera. The courts have already said no. So we're, we're moving into a time now where we're going to have first time in, in generations, right? In a light and since humans came onto the planet that we're going to have artistic works where there's no copyright right to them. 
And so if we just, you know, understand how money works and money flows, people don't do things just because it's the right thing to do, right? They have to be incentivized <laughs> to behave well and to, to give proper credit, including monetary compensation where it's due. Um, if we ever do move into a utopian society where we do things <laughs> because it's the right thing to do, then sure, I could see the 2% uh, if something was 2% of some other artist's work was used, maybe they would throw them a couple of bones. Right. Right. But uh, we don't live in that world. So we, we live in a very different world. And if we didn't have copyright rights to begin with, there's no reason for ASCAP to flow money back to the original um, artist of the work. Right. Because there's, there's all kinds of people in that line when you set up a mechanical license to music or, um, or a compulsory license or um, all kinds of people in the line that get paid uh, down the line, all the way back to the original artist gets paid. Um, and that's only because there is a copyright, right? And now we're going into a world without copyrights. So I would say no. Right. They're right, not going to get right, compensated. Right. But let's switch gears because um, a lot of businesses, particularly startup businesses and smaller businesses, may sort of never get around to protecting their own intellectual property. Um, whether I probably the most common would be trademarks, right? Where they have a business name or they have a logo or whatever. And so uh, given the fact that you may, you know, often be called in after the fact, or sometimes preferably right around the time of business formation, you know, what are some areas where people sort of forget to protect their own intellectual property upon business formation or early in the life cycle of a business, um, and is it is it purely trademark or is there sometimes are there sometimes other areas that get missed where they have an opportunity to protect themselves uh, on business formation at a reasonable cost? Patents are obviously much more expensive to prosecute in comparison to trademarks, but still there is sort of a, a point at which it may make sense to even you know go that route. So. How do you, you know, where, where are areas that you find that people are sort of not taking the steps they should? This is a fantastic question. And this is the one of the fastest ways to be put out of business is to step on someone else's intellectual property rights. So search. That's what I see happening um, or not happening most often. So someone comes up with a great idea, a great name, right? So let's talk about the um, public policy behind trademarks, because, and I don't think I hit on the public policy behind copyrights, but they're very different. The two, the two rights protect very different things, and they're fueled by different public policies. The public public policy behind copyrights is to protect an artist's ability to profit. The public policy behind trademarks is to protect the public not the business owner, but it's to protect the public so that the public doesn't think that it's buying something from one source or one company when it's actually from another. And kind of as a flip side to the trademarks, then that helps the business because the business can enforce their brand rights. And this is all to protect the public. So I have startups coming to me all the time. About 70% of my law firm is, is, pre-capital startups and they they're married to a brand they come in they've they've invested fifteen thousand dollars into all the things right into the website into the products into the packaging 
uh, and they did not run a search. They did not run a search to make sure that they could use that brand. Um, and then it results in them either having to rebrand or potentially facing a trademark infringement lawsuit or some other disaster. It, it's a lot of money. So searching for a trademark is a few hundred dollars. Rebranding is 17, 20, $25,000, depending on what you've done. So run the search. Um, if, if it's okay with you, I'd actually like to talk about AI generated trademarks. Could we talk about that? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> There's no problem with AI generated trademarks. So trademarks and copyrights are different because for a copyright right to apply, it has to be a human creating a work of authorship. For trademark rights to apply, it just has to be operating as a brand. It has to be operating as the source of the goods or services. So Nike brand shoes, right? EMA brand marketing association services. It has to be operating so that if you have AI generate your logo and generate your trademark, your name, your branding, that is protectable by trademark. You can register those even though it is generated by AI because authorship doesn't matter. Interesting, right? Yeah, that, that is fascinating. One thing that, that uh, you know, it, it took a while for me to understand in the, in the early days of trademarking things was the fact that it's very category driven. Right. So you've yes. got Delta Airlines, you've also got Delta Faucets, and you've also got yes. Delta University. They're all Delta, right? So it's protectable within a category. So how adjacent do categories need to be uh, to sort of assure that, that there's no confusion? I would imagine there are some categories that are a little bit adjacent, and, and it, you have to sort of be careful if you sort of start to butt up against uh, a, an adjacent category. Again, no bright line rule. <laughs> it is a gray area. Um, a few of the examples that I can come up with is if you have an online store, let's say you are Macy's, right? Macy's.com, Target.com. You're an e-commerce store. I know Target and Macy's have brick and mortar, but we're going to forget that for now. Let's just say that they're online retailers. Amazon, right? Amazon is an online retailer, although they're famous. But if you are an online, your store name is Macy's.com and you're selling shoes and jewelry and uh, kitchenware, no one can then go up, open up a brand named Macy's that makes the kitchenware because it's too close. People would think, oh, well, we have this online retailer that's selling these types of things. So, of course, they launch their own brand. Um, another, there is an example in the case law of um, a restaurant. So it was a barbecue place and I can't remember the name of the barbecue, um, but a barbecue, a decently famous barbecue restaurant. Someone tried launching a barbecue sauce or a mustard under that same restaurant name. And you can't do that. Even though that restaurant does not make mustard and barbecue sauce, the USPTO and courts have held that if you launch, um, a good that's similar to the service that's being provided, uh, it's too related. So there's every case, everyone has to look be looked at individually and there's no, like most things in, in law, at least on the civil side with business law and intellectual property rights, there is no bright line rule. It's case by case and there's a wide gray area. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, that's fascinating. So I guess I get one just has to be careful. It sounds like that you know when one's venturing potentially too close to a pre-existing uh, trademark. The other thing I'd love to you know let let our audience learn a little bit more about is the, the difference between word marks and and you know the the logo you know taking the logo portion of your intellectual property and protecting that. Sure. Can I use your giving forward and your did it? Sure. Uh, your did it. <laughs> okay. So there's multiple, actually, there, there's multiple kinds of things that you can trademark. A trademark protects what is identifying your company as the source of goods or services. And there's all kinds of non-traditional marks as well, including smells, textures, sounds, uh, colors, right? Tiffany blue is trademarked. Louboutin red is trademarked. UPS brown, FedEx orange and purple. Um, you've got the let's get ready to rumble, right? That's trademarked. That's a sound. You've got the NBC three chimes. Um, so there's there's a whole host of things that can operate as a trademark. If we're gonna focus on the most popular ones, which are word marks and logos, let's use your giving forward, um, where you have a heart logo and half of the heart is the G and then the other half of the heart is an F, right? So your yeah. word mark is giving forward and you would apply for that mark in a without using any design. So you would, I would recommend you file that in standard characters so that way, no matter how it's designed or spelled or um, like if someone changed F-O-R to the number four, it would still protect against that because it would be forward. The, the word mark um, is your broadest protection. So no one can take those words and m make it look any way for a related good or service to what you're selling. Usually when the startups come to me, we have limited cash flow, we have limited budget, and we have to set up a plan step-by-step. Step. Let's do this and this time, this and this time, just to help with budget. First thing we always protect is the word mark. That'll give you the broadest protection. Then we move to the logo. So your logo is the heart. And um, there's a portion behind your head where we can only see the heart and not the words. So what you're trying to do is build your brand up to where when someone sees the heart, they immediately know that's giving forward, um, even without the words, right? Think uh, Nike Swoosh, the Apple computer, Apple logo, um, the Amazon smile, right? When you're filing a trademark application for the logo, I recommend you file it do not claim any color. So that way it protects all colors. So even if you, I see you're using two different shades of blue, right? So I would recommend you still file it in black and white, you claim no color. So that way someone can't come back and um, I don't know, maybe turn the F into a P and change the colors to purple and yellow, right? Like, cause if you have, if you're uh, limited to the blue then you're gonna be limited to the blues. Um, so if you leave the, the color option out, that gives you broader protection. Now, if you were to register the trademark for the G and the F and someone tried to change the G into a B, you could stop them for a similar good or service because it still looks the same. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. This can be clear as mud, so. Um, <laughs> no, but it sounds like a layered strategy, right? Like you basically definitely. layer yourself up 
Um, and each time it gives you more protection, but, because, but it's more narrow as you go yes. up, right? And then actually you can, so if something has a trademark right, that doesn't mean that it takes out the other rights. It may have a copyright right to it if it's artistic enough. So looking at your giving forward logo, the G and the F, that might be artistic enough to have a copyright right to it. So that way, if someone is using it, but not as a trademark, um, you could still go after them for copyright infringement. Let's say if some, for some reason, a trademark infringement claim fails, maybe uh, they are selling dog treats, right? Which are not similar to anything that you do. Um, if you could reg, if that's artistic enough, you file the application with the copyright office and you get that registration, then you could have a layered copyright right on top of it. And you can assert both those rights at the same time. Yeah, that, that's really great. I'd love to make sure we have time to switch gears to uh, patents because the PTO has changed dramatically in the last 25, 30 years as to what's patentable, what's not patentable, particularly areas of business process. It seems like maybe the pendulum swung really far in one direction, now it's swinging a little bit back to the middle as to what they're willing to issue patents on. So when a startup comes to you and they're interested in protecting their intellectual property from the perspective of patents, um, and perhaps there's a business process or perhaps there's certain elements of originality that that, that are unique and new, um, what's the process by which you help them determine, okay, this is worth filing uh, an application on? And then does provisional fit into that where you're like, okay, maybe we can just take the first step and, and go ahead with a provisional. Yes. Okay. And it's a, that's a, it's a full analysis that we do. It's, it's not, it's not something that's simple. Uh, it's a long conversation that we have with the uh, client that comes in and uh, many attorneys should be doing this. They should be doing the same thing where we ask lots of questions uh, because all patents start out as trade secrets, utility patent. Well, even, even design patents in the United States, let me take a step back. In the United States, we have two kinds of patents. We have a design patent that just protects the look of something. Um, so the famous one is, I don't know if you can see my phone. The famous one is there was a big battle between Apple and Samsung over the look of the user interface of the phones, right? And it's because it's not functional. It doesn't matter how the little icons are shaped to change. It doesn't change how they work. Those could be triangles, right? They could be hearts. They could be diamonds. It doesn't matter. They chose this look, these little squares. Um, and it's just that it just protects the look. Utility per patents protect the function. So what is it doing? How is it functioning? And you can actually layer both of those patents onto a single product, depending. Um, so part of the process, all patents though start out as trade secrets. And for something to be trade secret, it needs to be secret, meaning the public can't know about it. It has to have a public, um, I'm sorry, it has to have a commercial value, meaning someone would has to be willing to want to take you out to the bar and pay for a drink at the least to try to pull that information out of you. Um, and then you have to actively be working to keep it secret, right? So famous trade secret, Coca-Cola formula, um, supposedly only two people know that. So we do an analysis. The first thing that we 
do is look at what are you selling? Can it be reverse engineered? That's like one of the first questions I ask. How would someone purchasing your product, whether it's something physical, like a phone or a downloadable digital good, how would they figure out how you are doing what you're doing with it? Can they figure it out? And if they can't figure it out, maybe it's better keeping it as trade secret and not patenting it because patents teach the public how to use your invention, how to make your invention. The public policy behind patents is to drive innovation and how it drives innovation is you give one person a quasi monopoly on whatever they came up with. And that forces people to come up with different ways of doing what that person did in order to bring that same product to market. Right. So that's how we drive innovation with patents. Um, so that's the first part of the analysis is we look at, Hey, is this better kept trade secret? Can you get a hundred years out of it? How long is it going to take someone to figure out what you're doing? Or are they going to figure it out pretty quick and you should file a patent on it? So at least you get 20 years to protect it. Um, then we look at all the parts of what you bring to us. So um, for software, it really has to do something that a human's not doing. And if you read software patent applications, I read them a lot. If you're reading them, you'll start to see that it's kind of sanitized. It doesn't read like the person invented software. It's They read more like they've solved a problem using a computer that humans cannot do. Does that make sense? A little bit, but it's still it's still a little vague because I'm, I'm trying to figure out if the same problem were solved using three different languages, right? If it were it were solved using Golang, Java, and PHP, you know, <laughs> is that a circumvention of the patent because it's, you know, just using a different language or is it more the process within the code? It's the combination of both. So for patents, if you've ever looked at a patent, skip all the beginning stuff, flip it over, go all the way to the end. And there's a, at the end, right before the abstract, well, I think the abstract on a grant and pa granted patent is in the beginning. So when we write them, it's at the end, but uh, flip it all the way, flip it over, look at the claims in the back. The claims are the only things that, uh, only portion of a patent that uh, the owner can stop the public from doing. So if you're reading the claim, and you perform all those steps, they can stop you. If you're reading a claim and maybe you figure out a way to get rid of one of those steps and you don't have to do that, then maybe you don't infringe the patent. So it's really going to depend on what's in the claims. And if the claims are limited to using Python, well then yeah, if you use any other program, you're probably not to infringe that patent and most likely that patent isn't even worth the paper it's printed on because it's too narrow right it's super easy to design around um there's no i don't know of a great way it, it has to be done case by case is where i'm trying to go there's no like bright line rule again um i think to answer the question that you're asking it's it really depends on what the patent itself says yeah, yeah. Well, I, it's it's clearly a a, a a gigantic area of law, and it sounds like each scenario is a little bit different. Um, what what about when folks say, "Oh, I'd like to file, 
either a full patent or a provisional because I want to scare off the competition, right? Uh, I just want to be able to put patent pending on something mm-hmm. uh, so that the, the 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 potential of future litigation actually sort of quashes my competitor from sort of trying to be too close to what I'm doing. Yes. Okay. This is a fascinating, fascinating question. And I'll, I'll probably talk another straight five minutes before I take <laughs> a breath. So um, let's talk about, so in utility patents, right now we're talking about the part that covers the function. This doesn't apply to design patents that just cover the look. Um, I'm going to use a fork as an example, right? So if you're the first guy to invent a fork, which is uh, a device for moving food from a plate to a mouth, right? And it has um, one end with four tines and the tines each have a sharp tip and a handle that you're covering the function of a fork. If you make the end of the fork, let's say a seashell shape, um, it doesn't change how the fork works, but it changes how it looks. The seashell shape on the end of the handle, that would be design patent. So we're talking about utility. In utility patents, we have two kinds in the United States. We have the provisional application, and these can be down and dirty. There's no real formula for what needs to be in there. Besides, you have to disclose your invention enough uh, for it to be found in your provisional. So that way, when you file your non-provisional and claim priority back to your provisional, there's enough support there, right? You have to build enough of a foundation for that claim back to hold up. Provisional applications only last 12 months. In the United States, if you don't do something at the end of the 12 months, it'll die. It's never published, never open to the public. You have to file a non-provisional at the 12 month mark. You can either do that by filing in the country that you're in. So for us, that would be the United States, or you can file a PCT application, which is the Patent Cooperation Treaty, which will, it's like buying an option in a stock. That's a holding house. And you can um, extend your right to file in foreign countries for another 18 months. That's what the PCT does. So you have that option. It doesn't really chill the competition until they know about it, right? Right. Um, So, and patent applications are not published until 18 months after they're filed. And can you use patent pending uh, with the provisional or do you have to wait until, okay. Yes, you can use patent pending with a provisional uh, on the day that you file. You can put that in your marketing and being able to add that to your marketing has value, right? That Mm -hmm. can that can boost things Um, as far as like damage awards, because damage awards, let's say you do end up getting the patent at the end of three to five years or longer. If it's software, if you do end up getting the patent, once you've put the public on notice that, Hey, this is your invention. And usually that's done through the normal publication that happens, which is a year and a half after you file it's 18 months. Um, if what you get granted is close to what published, you can go back to that day for your damages. You have no enforceable right with a patent application until it's registered, which is different than copyrights and trademarks. Right. Um, because you have an enforceable right without, without a registration. For patents, you don't. Um, so for the marketing aspect, uh, that can add tremendous value to your marketing depending on what you're selling, especially if it's something that's, um, I don't know. One example that comes to mind is maybe 
uh, non-Western medicine type of solution to a medical problem. Right. Right. And if you get to say patent pending on that, there's some there's supposed to be some validity behind that because no patent attorney or patent agent is supposed to file a patent application that is considered frivolous. Yeah. Um, so there, there should as, as long as it's not someone that did, unscrupulous that did it, there should be some bite behind that. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it scare off competitors? No. Um, right. Not from what I've seen. It, there's nothing to be scared of until it registers. So. Uh, so it sounds like it potentially carries a little bit more of a halo effect potentially with a consumer than it has as a chilling effect against competitors. Correct. I actually think it makes the the competitors uh, more curious. Um, (laughs) So I have clients that'll read, you know, to their competitors, their attorneys will reach out to me, you know, um, Hey, we see you've got patent pending on here. Can we talk about it? What's going on? And then uh, one there, they may be um, trying to do the right thing and reaching out to make sure that they're not infringing something that we're doing Uh, by that reach out, or they may just be trying to collect competitive intelligence, right? So, um, but we can put NDAs in place as strong as we can make them, um, and then have those conversations to help them. And if they're reaching out at the very least, if they send that reach out, that can help them in litigation later, uh, so that they can say to the judge, Your Honor, this wasn't willful. Look, we reached out. This is the information that we got. We thought we weren't infringing because of X, Y, and Z. Right, right. Well, it, it's there's just so much to cover in the category, and it's it's fascinating, and it's moving more quickly than than I could ever imagine. So, uh, any any final tips to folks who you know think perhaps either they they could be on either side of the situation, either they feel like their rights are being in, impinged upon, or they want to make sure that they protect their rights. You know. Um, what's, what's the right time to reach out, uh, to a legal team yesterday. So the right, (laughs) the right time it's, it's always yesterday, reach out to a legal team yesterday. There's so many little nuances and you may think that, oh, this, this, this rule looks pretty bright line. Like this looks pretty clear line in the sand of what I, what should or should not happen. And I'm totally in the clear, but there's probably some little nuance in there that takes that line and makes it very a wide gray band. Um, So work with an attorney um, early, ask your questions early, make sure that you're not stepping on somebody else's rights before you launch product, because that is the fastest way to go out of business Um, and to lose credibility with investors and all kinds of things. Like make sure that you do that due diligence in the beginning and look, we can't reduce, no attorney can reduce risk to zero, but we can get it, we can get it as low as it possibly can go. Um, and then also step up and register your rights early. Trademarks, you don't have to register to have the right, but if you don't register your trademark right, you're literally building a house on land that you do not own. And someone can come in and take that out from under you. So register early, confirm that you're not stepping on other people's rights early. Get all your contracts in place too. One of the big things I see happen is they don't have the proper paperwork in place with their employees or their independent contractors or developers to actually give the company the rights to be able to profit from whatever they are working on with that company to put it out in the market. Um, Make sure that those contracts are reviewed and that you actually 
own the rights that you're paying to develop to, I guess, I guess those are my, my last four ish thoughts. Yeah. Is that four? <laughs> right, w- one final question really, which it popped into my head as you were just uh, giving your answer there, which is, you know, when companies reach that level of value where the professional investor or semi-professional investor is coming in at maybe uh, the venture capital level and the numbers suddenly have enough zeros on it, where the investor actually potentially has some concerns, do you sometimes find yourself working for the investor as part of their due diligence process to go in and find out whether the company has uh, effectively protected itself on its own IP or potentially mitigated their risk as it relates to stepping on somebody else's IP? The answer is yes. So, um, and I have both as clients. Um, I have the the company that's looking for the investor, that's looking for the VC backed backing. And then I also have some VC clients that I help and I will do their due diligence to go look at that company and to let them know what their risk is. If they, you know, invest 5 million into this company, is this company actually going to be able to go into the market or are they going to immediately get into a lawsuit? Right. Right. Um, So I, I actually have both. The majority of what I do is I will help the company with the VC um, investor. So that's, that's probably 80% more 80% out of a hundred, right? If I 20, 80, 20, it's about 80% uh, of the time that I'm helping the company and the investors will reach out to me. They'll ask me all kinds of questions. Usually though, if the startup brought me in early, it's already in their data room. We've already got it set up. So that way um, the VC doesn't have to waste time asking questions. It's all there here's here's the searches that we did here's this here's the registrations here's the app like it's all nice neat with a bow on it inside their data room so um, yeah that's that's a great advice right because if the if the company is uh, reaching the velocity where they think that they will be starting to look for investment professional investment in particular um you wouldn't want to suddenly have this the, the entire process slowed down by months because all of a sudden it's a crisis and they need to bring you in and try to rush you through the process of determining risk and mitigating risk. Very true. And that'll turn off a, a VC company too. No matter how great your idea is, if it looks like your house is, in or- is not in order, the VC is not interested in any of its money going to you cleaning up house, right? right. And getting your house in order and setting up all the all of the things that you're supposed to have in your house. So uh, I've seen deals squired by that too. I've had companies come to me a little bit late in the game and they say the VC is asking for X, Y, and Z. And I tell them it's going to take us eight months to pull all of that together. Um, the, they know that the VC is going to back out. Yeah. They're just, they're, if they're interested in, in you, you have to um, strike while the iron is hot. Right. And so they're going to chill and they're going to go find some other company who does have their house in order and they can make a quick turn on their buck because you have to remember that they're there to make a profit and to make a profit as fast as they can (laughs) or to have you fail as fast as you can to save the money. Right. So, and if they come into your house and your house is a mess, they're going to move on. Well, once again, it it goes back to your your adage of you know call your lawyer yesterday. <laughs> right? Yesterday, so. <laughs> yesterday was always the best day. Yeah. 
All right, great. Well, it's, it was a pleasure uh, having you educate me on on sort of the current state of the the market of intellectual property and law and startups. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, the pleasure was mine. I'm so grateful to be a guest. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye. Kevin Lee's Power Marketing is available on all your favorite podcast networks. Kevin loves helping businesses excel at marketing. Having marketing challenges? Just like Santa in the Miracle on 34th Street. If Kevin can't help you, he'll know someone who can. Find him on LinkedIn, subscribe, or follow.